balloon of yours goes up. Forces of anarchy, wreckers of law and order. You see? Communists, Maoists, Trotskyists, Neo-Trotskyists, Crypto-Trotskyists, Union leaders, Communist Union leaders. You see? Atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love, the government of the government love, the government of the government You're uh, to talk now about your, um, your sort of your posters work, your co- I mean, one of the things you're uh, interested in is representations of time travel in uh, in popular culture. Um, I was wondering um, what you have to say about that, or could you speak about that a little bit, or what's, what, what interests you about about that? Because it seems to be a very dominant trend at the moment in cinema, there's lots of movies about time travel, and you see it in sort of sci-fi TV programs and, and, and so on. Mm. I mean, you could see how, if we're talking about uh, how Deleuze was thinking about time and space and all of those things, how it might you can how it might lead you there quite in a, in a quite simple way. Uh, the question that kind of really appealed to me around um, time travel was, what is time travel all about? And uh, you can approach that question from, is time travel possible? Yeah, or are there certain paradoxes that wouldn't let it happen? But I'm not really too sure any filmmaker has ever made a time travel film with with that being the the, the, the determinate question of why they're getting involved in that in that that kind of aspect. So, what does it? What anxieties does it? Give yeah, well, exactly. You know, I mean, look what, what happened. Affections, as you might put it, does it represent this time travel? This concern of time travel? And, and, and yeah, I mean, it's mending, mending. It's mending time, isn't it? Sometimes it's it's mending the time you broke in the first place. You know, how many time travel films are about going back in time and something happens that you then have to kind of fix? Yeah? The classic example being in Back to the Future 2 where they take a, um, a book back with all of the race uh, winning information from an almanac and somebody becomes rich out of it and the the present is then turned into a dystopian problem. So you then got to go back. You got to try and fix to return time to the way it is. So usually, it's an inherently conservative impulse, isn't it? To re- mend time, absolutely, or to make it better, and all of this, that, and the other. So there is that that aspect to it, absolutely. Um, so that's that's not about the scientific possibilities. That's about you know how many of us wish we couldn't go back and have done something a bit differently. That's what those films are saying, right? Some films, of course, don't play those games. I mean, Doctor Who's a great example of where time travel is just uses you as a mechanism to encounter new kind of like experiences. You know, it's a it's a dispersive kind of stone being skipped endlessly across a, a, across waves. Yep, new encounter, new encounter, new encounter. What kind of so that was that's you know in, and you can see here how to construct homogenous time how how time can be put back together and it does seem a very conservative kind of but some films kind of escape that and the, so the piece of work I was working on was a film called Russian Ark and this is by a Soviet filmmaker sorry by a Russian post-Soviet filmmaker a Russian filmmaker Russian Federation filmmaker um, and it's a time travel movie where. Um, two people are wandering through the St. Petersburg um, Museum, uh, the Winter Palace as was, um, encountering different times. And 
It's a very different, there's no crisis, there's nothing to mend, they're just encounters. And what kind of crops up with that different way of using uh, time? In other words, it's not the, the travellers going back and causing a crisis and that they have to mend. It's not about solving crises, it's not about mending anything. In other words, it's not about re-establishing order. It's about encountering the, the time in a very different way. That, that time is fundamentally difficult. That time is fundamentally problematic. That events don't all kind of add along a, a nice timeline. That they impact each other in resonating different kinds of ways. Well, no, but even that's about, you know, trying to regain and mend, but being unsuccessful. This is more about just time. Time is fundamentally in crisis all the time. Time is out of joint, you know, that's it. It's unmendable. So, yeah, so do you think then that movies, which uh, uh, are TV shows, that make the move into the future or something else going on in there, you know, where they move from the present to the future, people going to the future. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting this. I was like, the moment you, <laughs> the future is always the past of another future yeah. and the present that the tribe traveller is in. So, um, so it's almost a redundant question. Yeah, <laughs> and that's kind of where you end up. Uh, and, and Deleuze, in Difference Repetition, talks about what what is what is presentness, yeah? And what is pastness, and what is future, and what are the characteristics of these? And these kind of get resolved into kind of linear time for us, yeah. The past becomes the past, the present becomes the present. It's always moving. Time's arrow. The future is kind of like uh, kind of close to us, but we can project into it. And what we do is we these three fundamentally irresolvable aspects of time become kind of synthesized in an active kind of I, for me, I. There's an I, I look at my past, I look at my future, I'm in the present, and I stack everything up, present's past, they move into the past, and the future is is, is something that I'm encountering, and we narrativize those in, in a very simple way. What Deleuze tries to do is say, well, hang on, the past is a very different type kind of time, irresolvable with time as present and irresolvable with time as future so i think even with movement images of time travel some and i think doctor who's great at this yeah, I was about to ask, yeah. does does that exploration brilliantly i mean in the very fact that the central character changes yeah changes you know it becomes different people i is fragmentary different genders yeah Yeah, and different genders let's celebrate that absolutely brilliant what a wonderful move and i might say something that's been being called for by doctor who fans way back since the late late 80s you know what i mean you know even in doctor who magazine back in when tom baker was uh was changing it to Pete Davidson. There were there were uh, Doctor Who fans saying, "Isn't it time that a woman came in?" You know, uh, so it's it's a very old question that that, that lasts. Um, the new uh, the new showrunner Chris Chibnall has uh, has answered at last. Wonderful, but the you see even in those those can give you a very disruptive, disparate sense of time. You know, where things don't add up, where things don't stack up. Generous drama, right? Yeah, but it also generates anxiety, you know. So look at the, the look at the 
look at the backlash in some sections of the population about a, a female time will coming in. Also, like, well, it's a bit unrealistic. What? Well, so the other 13 changes weren't? (laughs) (laughs) But the philosophy there is, you know, we are we are different people. Yeah, we are different people at different times in our life. And this is one that Deleuze, you know, Doctor Who is fundamentally a Deleuzean program from top to bottom. Okay. <laughs> okay, so um, now uh, as well as that, there's uh, some your other. Um, I know at the mo- your other interest at the moment is um, Nietzsche, and I know you're currently uh, authoring a book on uh, the relationship between Nietzsche and uh, you're authoring a book on the relationship between Nietzsche and film, um, and I'm wondering. Um, is this a departure for you, or is it something new? Or what is what is Nietzsche? What is uh, what are are you taking Nietzsche in, that, in a Deleuzean sense? Where you're going, okay, what can can Nietzsche Nietzsche's themes give us something new about the question of cinema? Given that he was, of course, a, a philosopher, I guess predates cinema just about. I know he was he was alive when cinema was being made, but but he, we, not in his working capacity. No. Yeah, yeah. Um, on one hand, Deleuze leads you in some natural directions. One would be Bergson, one would be Spinoza, another would be Nietzsche. Um, to be honest, um, there's a lot of different reasons for, for wanting to s- start exploring this area. And one is, um, yeah, was to regenerate my academic kind of uh, uh, joie de vivre. New doctor. Yeah. yeah. Um you know, the, the the problem is that if you continue writing in one vein, yep, you're going, there's a, there's a po- the trouble and the possibility of diminishing returns. So you want to give yourself new challenges and get out of your comfort zone. The other was, um, you know, problems that you encounter in working in a certain way. So I, I've been treating Deleuze in a very systematic kind of way, in a way that other writers on Deleuze of the cinema books had shied away from, um, which in itself ha- contains certain problems and, and uh, um, certain problematic ways of capturing up Deleuze. And no matter how I tried to manoeuvre around those, there was still the whiff of that there. So the, uh, the there's lots of reasons for turning to Nietzsche. One was... Um, I suppose saying, well, let's start again. Let's start again. Let's start looking at cinema from a completely different perspective. Um, you know, Deleuze wrote on cinema. So I'm writing about someone that's written on cinema. Nietzsche never wrote on cinema. So wh- what can we do? What? How can you approach cinema through Nietzsche? You know, Deleuze answered that question by approaching cinema through Bergson. Yeah. And Bergson famously there's a couple of notes on cinema in early, in one of Bergson's later books, but you know, there's really nothing there. Yep. You couldn't say Deleuze was using Bergson's film theory. Deleuze created a film theory from Bergson. So what would you do that? Now, the difference here is going to be that you can't do the systematic approach with Nietzsche. So the whole idea that I've been looking at over the last few years of taxonomies and, and different ways of working with that, 
um, has to be thrown out of the window. And you have to now start approaching the problem of thinking about cinema yeah, from a diff completely different perspective. Uh, which, let's just say, led me down a few false starts and uh, and uh, and failures, and led to a few failures, early failures. What are the themes in Nietzsche that uh, you attracted at the moment? I know you've written on sort of Nietzsche's. Um, you've written on Nietzsche's theory of truth, I think, and uh, the relationship with cinema. Yeah, that's that's a that's a, a recent one, I suppose. What I'm, what I'm trying to, what where I'm starting at with Nietzsche, uh, is trying to look at the, if you like, the different people who call them different things, the teachings, the, co let's just use the word concept. Let's use that just to, so we can have a conversation. Yeah. So, death of God, the the overhuman, uh, will to power. Uh, Truth is a mobile army of metaphors. There we go. Absolutely, metaphors, metonymies, and anthropomorphisms. Absolutely. Um, so, truth is another one. Dionysus is another one. You think about all of that when you think about Nietzsche. All of those kind of like conceptual moments that bubble up. So, what would happen if you took a film, yeah, and you used the death of God? Yeah, what film would you choose? How would you do it? Yeah. So, what film would you do with Dionysus? Yeah, where would you go to that? And what would, so bringing in other words, Nietzsche together, one one aspect to Nietzsche together, and the way I'm approaching it is kind of looking at the book is going to be using, you know, birth of tragedy to look at uh, a certain film, you know, using uses and abuses of history to look at a certain film, and bring those two, rubbing the two together. What does if we do that? What does the film tell us about Nietzsche? What does Nietzsche tell us about the film? And where do both of them? spring off and jump in to talk about something wider and you know capture up some other kind of conversation so the one you referred to there was the uh, a recent piece i did i was invited to do for um canadian magazine called cinephile and they were doing a uh, an issue on new media and um, they asked me to do a piece for them and it was quite an open brief so um what I what I wanted to do was, as I say, do some Nietzsche and do some uh, do some film, bring that all together. So I looked at um, uh, the early unpublished essay, which comes just after Birth of Tragedy, called "Truth and Lies in a Non-Moral Sense." And the quote you gave me a moment ago comes from there. Yeah. So what is truth? It's a mobile army of metaphors, metonymies, and anthropomorphisms. So this seemed to me quite. Uh, interesting question to approach uh, a film with, but also in the context of new media, with everything that's going on, with uh, in the new media environment, and so also with the media. politics that we are encountering, with you know so-called false truths and alternative facts and all of this, that, and the other. Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, well, I'll put a simple Socratic question to you, then, which of course are never simple is. Does cinema, can cinema reveal truth, or what does Nietzsche tell us about that? Yeah, well, I mean, Nietzsche kind of gets tarred with with the with a kind of vulgar postmodernist brush. In other words, he comes the the whipping child for there is no truth. Yes, he's an art skeptic, art relativist. Hmm. Um, my view is the exact opposite of that. 
there's there's truth everywhere. Yeah, you know, I think Nietzsche's very good too on this. Too much truth, for instance. Too you. much truth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's truths of all different types overlaying each other, contradictory, you know, all of this, that, and the other. <coughs> so how do you get to the bottom of, of that? So on the one hand, the answer is very, very simple for Nietzsche. You know, um, the world is anthropomorphic through and through. You know, you, all, all, we are human and we create the truths around us. Um, and I suppose the limit case you have to go to with this is science, you know, because that's where um, people will attack this notion of there, there is no absolute truth, or if you like, there are many, many kinds of truths. They'll, that, this is where they'll attack from. And so that's one of the questions you have to fundamentally deal with. Okay, so one of, the, one of your essays, I found a semi-file essay, was on um, Adam Curtis's uh, hypernormalization yes. documentary. Uh, and in that, uh, you deal with uh, that particular essay uh, um, on truth and lies in an extra moral sense. And uh, I think what was interesting about that, uh, that, that, that interpretation was that you saw Curtis's documentary, Hypernormalization, as a kind of a very Nietzschean attempt to give expression to complicated truths. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So uh, could you um, explain maybe, because uh, I mean, that hypernormalization documentary is very much about those things you're talking about. It's very much about the politics of the time. Uh, I remember when I watched it, like I thought it was before Donald Trump became elected president. And I thought, well, that's unusually pessimistic for Curtis. He usually has some alternative <laughs> uh, towards the end but uh, I think he was just giving expression to his times and he was he was I think he was right clearly Adam Curtis so well firstly what is this hypernormalization and uh, what is it telling us about Nietzschean truth well the the title comes from um, a book uh, called e Oh, the title escapes you now, but something along the lines of, you know, everything was as it is until it wasn't. You know, it's a book about Soviet regime change. Uh, and um, the the term is, uh, if you start with normalisation, what is normalisation? Well, we use it now all the time, the normalisation of racism, the normalisation of, you know, of... Um, Sexism, homophobia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All of those kinds of things. The term itself, though, is quite neutral because you can also think about it as the normalisation of gay marriage, the normalisation of of trans uh, people being in the world. Those things can be normalised too. So it's, it's, it's in that sense. But but the use of hypernormalisation that that's being captured up here is really that first sense I was talking about, where whereby. Um, you present simple narratives. You give people what they want. In kind of collusion between power and desire. Yeah. So you know, people require a safe linear time. So that their spaces to be very coherent. Yep. And power says, okay. Yep. You want that? We'll give it to you. And we see that across Europe at the moment. We see that in America. We see that in lots of different places where where power will bow down to desire and desire feeds into power and power feeds back upon desires. And really, uh, the aim here is homogenous times, homogenous people, homogenous ways of closing in upon each other. 
So what? how do you fight that? Well, you, I referred to earlier, Mary Beard, you know, says, you know, the, the job of an academic is to make things more complicated. And I think that's, that's really what Adam Curtis tries to do. He tries to show that the world is a very, very, very complex place and that all simple narratives do are try to close down complexity. And the moment you try and close down complexity, you end up with very simple statements uh, around this is good, this is bad, you know, this is good, this is evil, you know, and it's a very simple way to map out the world, to map out the space you're in, to map out the times you've come from. And of course, is a breeding ground for uh, for lies. So, that's interesting then, because he's not doing documentaries in the conventional sense. Now, I know in sort of, you know, documentarians never ever thought that they were, you know, giving a full-on version of the truth. Some did. Yeah. I mean, well, <laughs> Early ones, yeah, but you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ron yeah. Flaherty, Hannah <laughs> Barron or something like that. Yeah. But the, the, I guess, I guess... Is 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 the way he presents his documentary sort of you know the use of the the, the his strong authorial voice mixed with sort of music mixed with juxtaposed images as he does this in his documentary Bitter Lake I think to some extent as well yeah absolutely is he trying to get at a more essential truth or a richer form of truth uh, rather than um, a new opinion yeah well I, again I think um, what we got to go that back to there is what do you mean by truth um, so if I said I said a little while ago that you know kind of like the high watermark for truth and facts is the domain of science because that's where you're going to live or die on your concept of truth. Uh, a wonderful, a wonderful, wonderful story, a wonderful conversation between three or four uh, astrophysicists quite recently um, in an origins project conversation. So you got uh, famous names like. Uh, Green, Tyson, and Krauss all talking about uh, talking about uh, how we understand the universe. Was Cardinal McCarthy involved in that? Uh, no, oh, I don't know. I don't know. He's been involved in in some of those. It's a yearly thing, and they have a number of people sitting around. But in this one conversation, these are the main players that are there. And Lawrence Krauss says something. Isn't it wonderful? You know, we discovered maths, and it's uh, you know, it's a language of physics. And Tyson says, No, 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 no. It's the language of the universe. Yeah, we can understand that. And Brian Green, who's a, another astrophysicist like these these two, also got a PhD in maths, it's important to say, uh, says, well, hang on, hang on a minute here. You can just imagine, right, that there we are one day and some aliens are land. So here's a thought experiment he's going to give us. Some aliens are land on the planet and they look around, you know, they've travelled across the stars and they've landed with us and they, they look around and... Uh, they go, well, you know, you're doing okay here. You've got some, you know, you've made a lot of progress. You're, there's a lot of good things going on, I can see. You know, how do you, how do you, how do you manipulate your worlds? And we go maths and they go, ah, oh, maths. Yeah, we used to try maths years ago, but it only takes you so far. Yeah, and Green's point was this, is that, the, the, you know, maths is a tool. It's a language that we use to understand reality. A, a tool as equally valid in its own domain and for what it does as art, as a painting, for understanding and manipulating. I'm not saying they're the same. 
everything we've talked about today with Deleuze would make that an absolutely stupid and pointless statement. It's a different kind of way of manipulating reality. And it works. We know it does. Absolutely, yeah? But it doesn't mean it is the truth. It's one way of manipulating reality. And Brian Greene, this astrophysicist, was quite clear on that. And acknowledging that allows you to therefore go off and not rest on your laurels and think this is the only way to do things, yeah? Or the ultimate way to do things. The absolute truth is 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 is, a, is achieved this way. So that's where you're going to come to. And it comes back to Nietzsche's point, you know. Truth is anthropomorphic. You know, maths is a tool that humans use to do things in the universe. So you're always going to come up against that. And how does that relate back to hypernormalization and what Curtis is trying to do with that? I guess his 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 interpretation or his, his attempt to as a documentarian to give expression to complex truths. Well, in a sense, to show lots of different kinds of narratives and how they bump up against each other. And to show how uh, any kind of unitary uh, understanding of the of the truth, yeah, which obviously at the same time means simplicity, is pretty impossible. So his documentaries really aren't about telling you the way things are, yeah, but it's about introducing elements in that will open up your thought as a spectator, to thinking about the things that are being discussed on screen. Yep. So he's got loads of different tactics for that. Yep. Uh, one of the most famous that comes out of, of hypernormalization is a montage piece of using uh, late 90s uh, apocalypse, American apocalypse movies. And he, he, he makes a kind of pop video using Suicide's Dream Baby Dream of... Um, all of the from about ten or twelve movies, but actually it's probably about five or six people looking up into the sky, yeah, uh, and then just destruction, you know, where Godzilla crushes this and uh, a, a tsunami wave engulfs a city, you know, aliens blow up the White House, and then he makes the point, you know, all of these films came before nine eleven, yeah, so there was some kind of atmosphere going on here, yeah. How does that cultural moment and that reality, how do they all come together? It's kind of like filming the zeitgeist in the full sense of the word, the spirit of the times. Absolutely. And and as a sense, exploring, exploring a kind of way in which cause and effect are not simple kind of uh, homogenous pathways that lead you down a certain path. You know, why... You know, and I don't want to make claims like this, but you can you think about all of the different narratives out there about nine eleven, yeah, the conspiracy theories, all of these different kind of things that are out there. And Curtis doesn't really respond to those, but what he does want to do is make you think about those things for yourself and present you with gaps to do so. Yeah, so he's not giving you this is how we ended up with 9-11 and this is what happened afterwards. He's approaching problems in a very kind of uh, disruptive uh, and dispersive way that, that means that you as a, you talked about it earlier, you know, you as a spectator have to actively participate in thinking about how all of this stuff maps together. And there's, there's the psychological aspect to it as well. You know, given the fact that we encounter all of these disparate, dispersive 
kind of factors, what's our reaction to them? And we've talked about this, you know, for the last hour or so in many different ways, yeah? We want to re-establish identity. We want to re-establish homogenous time. We want to re-establish the spaces around us, yeah? This is the Deleuzean theme of difference and repetition, yeah? Solid eye, you know, at the centre of my universe with a with an easy-to-understand history and a pathway where I know where I'm going, you know? All of those different things to time travel, to, you know, wanting to mend time, and uh, some some time travel filmmakers saying, well, hang on, time's in crisis, and we can explore this through the time travel genre. And I think that's what Curses is really trying to do. He's trying to upset simple narratives. And if you upset simple narratives, you as a spectator then have to sort of start question what those simple narratives are trying to do. And what they're trying to do, essentially, is uh, close down thought. Yeah? that's And that's the answer. Close down thought. That's... That's what every simple response will always be. That's what every claim of truth will ever ever be. And the problem's always going to be then, well, where then do we go? If you're saying there's truth everywhere, yep, do you just end up flopping on the floor in a nihilistic mess? If you say there is no truth, yeah, again, you encounter nihilism again. So, you know, I'll do this again. What's the solution? I think Nietzsche does give us the solution here. Thank you for listening to The Well. Our theme tune is Love the Government by El Papa Giraffe and is licensed under Creative Commons. You can follow us on iTunes or your preferred podcast app.